Evening, everyone. Good evening. <laughs> uh, just a uh, big up to my daughter. She led worship twice this morning at our 8.30 and 10.30, jumped into the car and drove six hours to be here and arrived at 6.30 and led. So, Sophie, it's beautiful. <laughs> Proud of you. So fantastic. And uh, she's uh, on our staff. She's at college. Um, but um, she'll be leading for two more nights, and then we'll be joined by the, the staff band, but always fun to minister as a, f- as a family. It's great to be back um, with uh, Art and Becky as well, who hosted us last year, and uh, just, just wonderful to make new acquaintances and, and reacquaintances. The Gospel in Genesis, the Gospel in Genesis. Genesis is the book of beginnings, as we know, and Genesis is the is the book where we, we find not just the how of creation. As I said this morning, there's mystery to the how of creation. And I love having conversations. I love leaning into the reasons we have, the scientific plausibility of creation. I absolutely believe that God created the heavens and the earth with the word of His power. And yet there's a lot of mystery uh, to how and how long um, and my, my real concern in, in Genesis is to look more at the who and the why of Genesis. Uh, how is God disclosing Himself, His character and His purposes? And how is He revealing uh, the gospel in advance? Uh, one of the primary characters in Genesis, and we'll look at him later, is Abraham. And Romans 4 says that Abraham saw the gospel in advance. And so I am not going to go chronologically this week um, in terms of, I will go chronologically, but I'm not going to be able to do the whole of Genesis. We've been as a church almost a year in the book of Genesis. But I'm going to take particular little uh, moments through the characters. We're going to look at Adam and Eve again uh, this morning. We're going to look at Noah and the flood. Uh, We're going to look at Abraham and we're going to look at Jacob as well. Uh, But we're going to look at the way God reveals His grace and reveals His design. We're going to look at the way humans tend to mess up that design and the consequences of that. Uh, But we're going to see that God is a redeeming God. And uh, tonight I want to look at the blessing and the curse and the redemption of family. The blessing, the curse, and the redemption of family. And uh, we are going to find, you know, this morning I read out of Genesis 2, the creation of Adam and Eve. It was wonderful to speak to some Biola students and a USC student just wrestling through the two creation accounts in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And Genesis 1 seems to be a zoom out account. And then Genesis 2 seems to be a zoom in on that same uh, account. But we find this beautiful creation. Let us make man in our own image we see a glimpse of the Trinity creating. And uh, so God made man in his own image, male and female, he created them. And we see this beautiful mystery of Adam being put into a deep sleep and uh, a rib being taken out and the, and, and the woman, uh, Eve, being created. And he sings this beautiful song, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh for you were taken out of me. And we see This intimacy, we see uh, what theologians call complementarity, uh, that they are one in flesh, they were naked without shame, but they're not the same. 
Adam and Eve are, are not the same. Uh, there's a complementarity. They fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. They are better together. And we see this fruitfulness, both fruitfulness in terms of uh, children, but also fruitfulness in the garden. They cultivate the garden, and we see that. I'm going to pick up on uh, actually the, the curse that comes in to marriage and family. We're going to read Genesis 3 and the consequences, the wreckage that comes into marriage and family and how God uh, redeems that. Let me just press pause before I read and, and ask, how many of you are grandparents? Yeah, fantastic. Grandparents have the best life, don't they? You, you, you don't have to do the disciplining. You just give all the gifts. I look at my folks with our kids, and I'm just like, what happened to you? You got so soft. And they were like, well, we're grandparents. We don't have to be parents anymore. It's wonderful. How many of you are parenting kids who have left home or are, are in the young adult phase? Yeah? That's us? That's us? Okay, great. And how many of you have got, uh, have got kids who are at school? All right? A number of you. Yeah? How many of you have got kids who are below the age of five? All right. Our friends, David and Elizabeth, they are incredible. We actually met them for the first time uh, here last year, and uh, they're now part of our church. But they have got daughters who have left home and are leaving home, and they fostered two babies this year. <laughs> so in their 50s, they're starting again. Just amazing. Uh, marriage and family is such a privilege. It's a mystery. Uh, it's a gift. But there's a sobriety to it, isn't it? I remember... Um, and I'll introduce you to our family um, just as soon as I've read Scripture. But uh, our, our oldest is, is Asher. I remember Renelle and I sleeping, uh, not sleeping, sitting sleepless, blurry-eyed, with dirty diapers all around with this little kid. And she turns to me and she says, Do you realize we have brought something eternal into this world? And it was just the sobriety of, Oh my gosh, this is such a gift, but this is such... A responsibility, and I know that uh, kids have the potential to bring us the greatest joy and the greatest pain. Uh, there's that saying: that "You're never happier than your saddest child," and and that's a thing: is that becoming a parent, you become inextricably linked to their joy and their pain, uh, and yet God in Genesis shows that His design is to bless the world through the family, and so He gives Adam and Eve this commission, uh, subdue the earth and then multiply and fill the earth. I'm going to bless the world and we're going to see how they mess it up and we're going to see the curse that comes into the first family. It's pretty sobering, it's pretty sad. But we see later in Genesis 12 where God doubles down, even after the pain of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and the sibling rivalry, and he doubles down and he says to Abraham, I'm going to bless the world through your family. Through your family, all nations will be blessed. And we just need to see that God's design is to bless the world through the family. But He has a design for it. And we need to stick to the design. And when we leave the design, actually, there's a curse that comes in that He's continually redeeming. But there is a design. So let's read together Genesis 3. And we're going to read from verse 1 to 21. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, 
We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some of her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Can we see that Adam moves from, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh to the woman you gave me. She made me do it. It's a sad game of blaming and shaming. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Remember that verse. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them all. Talking about working by the sweat of your brow. I need my handkerchief. Where is it? Is it there? Not there. Anyway. Um, this is a, here it is. This is a sobering passage because we see the marvelous potential of family. We see that God wants to bless the world through the family. But we see that there is a real enemy in the family, that the family actually, because of Adam and Eve, our first parents, is embattled. It's in a battle. And we're going to see that this battle included the corruption of marriage and the, those roles. It included actually sibling rivalry, and it included work, fruitful work, becoming toil. We're going to look at that for a moment, then we're going to see how God actually is so wise as a parent. Adam and Eve are the first parents, but they're also the first kids. And we're going to look at how God wisely parents, and we're going to look at how we can mimic that. And then we're going to look at how God redeems ultimately through 
his son. Let's get the, uh, just go back one, and let's get uh, the picture of my family. Can we get that, please, Nolan? Is it there? There we go. The blessing, curse, and redemption of family. This is a recent trip out to South Africa, and there at the back are my mom uh, and dad, and uh, there's my sister just to the right, and my brother just to the left, and all of their siblings. Actually, our kids are not there, but, uh, but their kids are. One of them is, is married. And uh, I just had the privilege of growing up in an incredible home. My parents have lived in the same house for 50 years and been part of the same church for 50 years. My dad is an engineer. My mom is a, uh, is a marriage and family counselor. And, uh, but they've been leaders in that church for 50 years. Absolutely amazing. And we grew up in this amazing uh, city called Durban uh, that's quite rural in many ways very Garden of Eden-ish, and had just an amazing faith family. And I would say my upbringing was Pleasantville. It was absolutely amazing. But we experienced, uh, when I was about 10, the serpent come. And I, as a 10-year-old, stumbled in on my older sister being sexually abused by an uncle. And it was a traumatic, traumatic moment. Um, firstly for her, and then secondly for me, and then thirdly for our family. Uh, we carried the shame of that. Uh, she obviously carried deep, deep scars for many years, and I was unfortunately revealed uh, or exposed to something that I shouldn't have been exposed to. And um, I'll, I'll go back into just how God has redeemed that, but I know whenever we talk about family, I'm speaking into a mix of real beauty and also brokenness. Um, many of you are here because you celebrate healthy families, but just as many, perhaps more, would have real stories of pain, of divorce, of abuse, of abandonment. And I realize, man, talking into family, even the model family like ours, has got the snake in the grass that has come and has brought something of the curse that we experience from our uh, first parents. So I want to walk carefully I am a pastor. Uh, we have pastored churches for almost 30 years, four different churches, and we care so deeply about marriages and, and families. And I love the fact that Genesis gives us a beautiful design for family. It gives us the, the sobriety of family carrying a curse, but actually shows God as a great redeemer. So let's just look briefly at how uh, the curse means that family is in battle. Firstly, it says, verse 16, while childbearing and raising is blessed. It's, it's blessed. It's very painful. So because of sin entering, because of Adam and Eve's disobedience, uh, from God's blessing on Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, now to the woman, he says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. So we have the pain of labor, we have the trauma of miscarriages, we have ectopic pregnancies and infertility and children born with deformity. Uh, but not only that, you have the pain, not just of giving birth, but the pain of raising them. And we see that with Cain and Abel. Isn't it fascinating that the first murder in Scripture was through brothers that hated each other? Sibling rivalry, and you just see this family that's such a blessing. Actually, you see the real curse on that. 
And oh, the pain of raising kids who don't get along. <laughs> it's a blessing. If your kids get along, count it a blessing. And uh, we found as our kids have grown, we have a 24-year-old. Uh, he's a D1 college footballer that's just... Um, He's just finished his college, actually, and now is running a high-performance center. And then there's Sophie, who's 20. And then we've got a 17-year-old son called Levi. And they've gone through stages of real sibling rivalry and tension. And it's so wonderful when, when you see their relationships start to sweeten. Count your blessing, because many, many siblings just experience real rivalry and real resentment. I remember with my brother that... Um, I, I'm the youngest, but I was always bigger than my brother. My brother is five foot six and 160 pounds, my older brother. And uh, when probably I was about five, I remember fighting him and throwing him against the bed and splitting his head open. And uh, man, I thought I was going to get the hiding of my life. And uh, he came home from the hospital with stitches. And my father just saw that I was absolutely devastated. And he never punished me for it because he saw that there was this punishment in, in me for seeing my, my brother with his split open head. But we, we, we see that part of the curse is sibling rivalry and child raising is difficult. And then we also see a corruption of God's design for marriage to be this one flesh intimate union between a husband and wife in covenant. Verse 16, it says, God says to Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Just think about those verses. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Uh, one of the translations in the word contrary is, you shall usurp him. In other words, there would be a desire in Eve to usurp the leadership of the man, and then he would abuse his authority and rule over her. And so you see that this complementarity where, where Adam, the word Adam means source. And so Adam was supposed to be this leader who gave life, be, being a source of life to Eve. And the word Eve means helper. And that word helper, I know in our culture to, to call a woman a helper is like, whoa, man, don't, don't speak about that. But the word helper there is Ezra. And that word is a beautiful word. Actually, God calls himself our helper. Psalm 48. God is our refuge and strength, our very present Ezra in trouble. And so, wives... If you feel like, man, it's demeaning to be a husband's helper, actually God calls him that, himself that. And uh, so there was this, supposed to be this incredible sense of team and complementarity, but we see actually the corruption of these rules, of these roles, where now Eve is usurping and reaching for her husband, and the husband is dominating instead of being a servant leader and a source of life. I don't have time to go into that. That's a whole series in and of itself. But we can see and we feel that in our marriages, don't we? There's times when decision making and tension and argument just we feel this sense of the curse. And I do want to say that there is a sense in which uh, feminism in, our, in the last 50 years, there's been things that have been positive about that in the sense that 
women have needed to take back a sense of dignity where men have dominated. We, we, we have to see, verse 16, that, that, that a man ruling over a woman is not God's design. That's part of the curse. And so the aspect of fem- feminism that says, no, 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 women should have dignity. They should not be dominated is actually God's heart. And yet it's, feminism has taken that way too far where it's reached for a sense of we've got to be exactly equal. And actually, God's design is not about equality. It's about complementarity. And so God wants to redeem that. He wants to redeem marriages to be these one flesh teams where we recognize different roles. We recognize each of us are image bearers, but we don't have exactly the same roles. A little bit of an amen there. And we see that God's design for a man, it is interesting that uh, Eve was taken out of Adam. You say, wow, that, that seems like it demeans the woman. Leadership, God's design for leadership in the book of Genesis, fascinatingly, is not about privilege. It's about accountability. So when God comes... And it's Eve who is firstly being tricked by the serpent. Who does he ask first? He asks Adam. He holds Adam accountable. And then he asks the wife second. He says, Adam, what went on? And we see actually in Romans and in Hebrews, it is history tells us that it's Adam's sin, not Eve's sin. In other words, men, you want to lead? That's about accountability. It's not about privilege. There's a fascinating one further on in, uh, in Abraham and Sarah's life, in Genesis, around Genesis 18, where Sarah laughs at God's promise. And God comes and says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? In other words, I'm holding you accountable, buddy. In other words, spiritual leadership is not about privilege. It's not about a man sitting on the couch saying, you bring me the beer and I'll watch my channel. It's about accountability. It's about God saying, I hold you accountable. And so we see the corruption of that in Genesis. And then thirdly, we see, we'll get to the good stuff now. Just stay with me. Uh, We we see the pain of work that disrupts the peace of family. There's a corruption in terms of sibling rivalry, in terms of the roles of marriage. There's strife. And then verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread. How many of us feel that? Both men and women. Where work, and God designed work pre-fall. He designed work to be fruitful and satisfying. Fill the earth and subdue it. And yet after the curse, the wreckage of work that becomes toil. Now Adam farms with thorns and thistles. And we find this. The toil that we experience at work actually has a knock-on effect to both marriage and family, doesn't it? Because you get home exhausted. You're supposed to be connecting with your husband, with your wife, connecting with your kids, and you're just absolutely exhausted. Why? Because work feels like toil. How many, many of us feel like work is a little bit like toil right now? Yeah, that's a result of the curse. 
God designs satisfying labor, but actually because of sin, there's the sweat of our brow. About three years ago, my wife and I sat with our kids, who were mainly in their teens, and we asked a question that I don't know why, what possessed me to ask it, but we asked, guys, when you have kids, how will you parent them differently to the way we parented you? Don't try that at home. <laughs> and uh, it was actually fascinating and, and really encouraging in some ways because all of our kids at that stage, I hope they'd still say that, would say, no, said, no we, would, we would raise our kids very similarly, very similarly to the way you raised us. With one exception, they said. And all of them, all three said, we would try not to bring work stress home like you did, like you have. I was like, ooh, dagger to the heart, dagger to the heart. My wife is a counselor. I pastor a church. We do a lot of training with other church leaders and planters. We also have uh, a little Airbnb business on the side. All of those bring stress, and we are not very good at keeping that stress at the door, and that actually corrupts or puts strain on family, doesn't it? Okay, so that's sobering. I've told you the bad news. Family is corrupted by the fall, which means marriage and family can feel like pushing a rock up a hill. So where is the hope? You ready for some hope? You ready for some hope? We, we see a glimpse in verse 20 of the hope where... God, even after the curse, names before verse 20, the woman was just called the woman, Ezra. But after the curse, the woman gets a name, and her name is Eve, which means mother of all the living. Isn't that beautiful? Mother of all the living, verse 20. In other words, God is saying, even with the curse, I am not done with a family that blesses the nations. You will be the mother of all the living. How kind is God? Our first parents that actually brought death. I mean, their sin was like pouring poison into the headstream of a river that affected us all. And yet God says, you're the mother of all the living. And we see the grace of God and the kindness of God. And you and I, when we've messed up, we need to go back to verse 20 and say, even after that, God called Eve the mother of all the living. Thank you, Lord. Don't you think when you think of creation that God is the biggest risk taker? He is the biggest risk taking entrepreneur. He entrusts his plan to bless the world with these broken people that are prone to wonder, but he does it with you and I. He does it with you and I. And as I said, a few chapters later, God would call Abraham and Sarah, an equally broken couple, and, say, and said, I'm going to bless the nations with you. So we see actually God redeems this curse in two ways. Uh, the first is that he models healthy parenting. And here's where I'm going to get pretty practical. Uh, whenever we talk on parenting, Renell goes like, oh man, don't put ourselves out as the model parents because we're certainly not. We're still in it. We've got some things that we can teach, some things that we're like, oh my gosh, we cannot teach you that. We're still learning, etc. We've made mistakes. 
But what we see is God is an extraordinary wise parent in the way he parents Adam and Eve. And he parents them with deep connection, clear limits, wise questions, real consequences, and redeeming grace. You ready for it? So firstly, authentic connection. Authentic connection. Verse 8. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Don't you think it's absolutely amazing that God is not an absent father even after they've sinned? Doesn't give them the cold shoulder. He's a present parent. And he wants to connect with them even after they've sinned. And we find, as I said this morning, that they had this rhythm of connecting in the cool of the day. God enjoyed cool temperatures. I don't know whether the cool of the day was the morning or the evening, but it's like he had this daily date with Adam and Eve. Isn't it wonderful? And after they sin, I mean, how many of us, when our kids sin, just want to go, just get out of my face. I do not want to see you. But God comes looking. God comes for a walk. And they are hiding. They are hiding in shame. And I'm going to talk about shame tomorrow night. But don't you love the fact that God picks an enjoyable place and time to connect with His kids? He's teaching us how to parent skillfully. And one of the things we've found in terms of parenting our kids is that each one of them have different times and different places where it's easier to connect with them. I have found that the least favorite place and time for me to connect with my kids is when I give a little sermonette at the dinner table. Because they're like, Dad, we don't want preacher dad. We just want to have family time. And we've ha- I mean, I've tried to do these evening dinner devotions. They just have not worked. But we found each of us, and Renella is so good at doing this. I'm not as good as her, but she will find the time when kids are just more open and they just want to chat. Her voice, her persona is a lot more soothing and easy to open up to than mine. But I found with our daughter, I've connected with her around playing guitar. And so you find a time when you're strumming and out of that comes connection. Um, Our youngest son loves to cook, Levi. And so if I'm in the kitchen with him while he's cooking, he will just chat away. With our oldest son, who's kind of a jock, he wants to do stuff. He wants to paddleboard. He wants to watch football. And if I'm paddleboarding with him, then he will open up. Now, I want to encourage you... Be students of your kids, irrespective of what age they are. They're not one size fits all in terms of connection. They are, as Psalm 119 says, fearfully and wonderfully made. 39, sorry, 139. Fearfully and wonderfully made. Each of them have unique, unique personalities. If our desire is just for compliance before connection, we will create either robots or rebels. As Christian parents, we want good kids. It's natural. 
We want kids that love Jesus, that follow Him, that do not sin, that confess when they do sin, etc. But I found that our desire for compliance, if it doesn't come with a deep sense of connection, we will create robots or rebels. Secondly, we see God with clear boundaries, where He gives freedom to enjoy the garden with clear limits. Of that tree, you shall not eat or you will die. In other words, God is neither a helicopter dad and neither is He a pushover. He's saying, enjoy the garden, but actually here are the limits. And the serpent tempts them, and as they disobey, there are consequences for that. I want to encourage us to teach our kids to live within the limits of God. Psalm 16 says that the boundary lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. Limits sometimes feel really, really tough for our kids, but actually limits are good. And so God gives clear boundaries there needs to be consistent, clear boundaries, and that actually provide security. And thirdly, we see wise questions. When they disobey, God doesn't come just to scold them or to shame them. He comes asking questions. Where are you? What have you done? Who told you? What we see as God as a parent is that He wants to see not just the presenting behavior. He wants to see the thing beneath the thing. He's interested in their hearts. Who told you? Why did you believe him? And that is an absolutely vital thing, that we ask wise questions. Rather than just be, don't lie, don't steal, don't be angry. Why are you angry? Tell me why you're angry. Questions help our kids to internalize a conviction beyond mere compliance. Paul Tripp, one of my favorite teachers on the gospel and parenting, says this, Maturing with our kids can go one of three ways. They either growingly internalize the faith they've been taught, and this is beautiful, but it can develop by your child just becoming self-righteous and proud. I'm on the good side. Another way of maturing is them just becoming a smarter sinner. They're just good at hiding what they're doing and not getting into trouble. What we want is our kids to growingly internalize the faith. And that means clear boundaries but wise questions so that they're not just doing the right thing to be the good Christian, but they actually internalize this faith. I want to take a moment and look at Parenting Transition by a guy called Newhoff. And we found this incredibly uh, helpful, where he, he says, as a parent, we actually need to change the way we parent. So this is not Bible. This is a Christian guy who's helping us with wisdom in terms of wise boundaries and questions. But we found this incredibly helpful, that in the zero to five years, you are a caretaker of your kids. They are absolutely reliant on you for everything. They can't feed themselves. They can't change themselves. They can't go to the toilet themselves hardly. You are their caretaker. 
And you've got to be their lifeline, literally their umbilical cord. Age 5 to 12, they start to do some of those things for themselves, and that's a great thing. But at that point, you need to be a little bit of a cop. You need very, very consistent uh, boundaries, and, and you can't give up on those things. You have to repeat the same thing. One of the things that we found with our kids is greeting strangers. For years, probably five years, we insisted, now look in their eyes. Tell them your name. Ask them how they are. I mean, there was a time when after five years, Renelle and I were just like, are they ever going to get it? Are they ever going to get it? But actually, eventually they get it. And now we look at our kids and just like, they do it naturally. Why? Because we drummed it into them. So you need to be a cop, age 5 to 12. Age 12 to 18, you need to be more of a coach. And if you think of a coach, they are still calling the plays, but they're not right there in the grill. They're standing on the sideline, giving their kid a little bit more space, but they're calling the plays. And, and, and we found Many of our friends, many people we pastor, they don't make the transition from cop to coach. And in those teenage years, they just continue to be cop. And so real resentment creeps into the relationship. Because the reality is part of teenagehood is individualization where they are wanting to be more of their own person. But they're living under your roof, so you can't just let all the boundaries go. And yet you've got to allow some distance for them to express their individuality. Some nodding heads happening. Make the transition. We are now in this fourth stage, age 18 and up. And this is a hard one where you actually move from coach to counselor. What's the difference, you ask? From coach to counselor is a, a coach is calling the plays whether the players want it or not. A counselor actually has to wait and wait for the kid to come and say, hey, dad, hey, mom, I was wondering about this. What do you think? <laughs> that means, man, you zip your lip more often than you want to. And we see God expressing some of this. It's, it's so amazing that God just doesn't come and wrap them over the knuckles. I mean, there are clear consequences. He doesn't shame them, but he asks them deep questions because he is wanting them to internalize a sense of faith. And then finally, we see this redeeming grace. We see this redeeming grace. And I, I love this, verse 22. And God comes, and He covers them with skins. Isn't that beautiful? This is, there's two glimpses of the gospel that I want to land with, where we see God's redeeming grace, that are for me absolutely stunning. The first is verse 22, where God comes... And they are trying to cover their shame with fig leaves. I don't know if you've ever thought about how ludicrous it is to try and cover your shame, your nakedness, with a fig leaf. I mean, that thing's going to wilt and shrivel and tear real quick. And God comes and He's like, look, you're actually feeling appropriate shame. He doesn't say, oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. No, worry about it. This is a problem. But actually, that fig leaf is not going to do I've brought some skins. And the contrast between leaves and skins are that skins are strong. And skins are sturdy. But probably more importantly, skins are the result of something dying. 
And this is the very first glimpse you see of a substitutionary sacrifice in Scripture. Where something had to die because the wages of sin is death. And God is saying, in order to cover your unrighteousness, an animal will have to die. And what he was showing is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who would live the life as the second Adam that Adam couldn't live, but would die the death that Adam should have died in his place as a substitutionary sacrifice. And we are covered in the skins, the robes of Christ's righteousness. Isn't it fascinating that Jesus did not just die a substitutionary death, He was mocked and shamed on the cross to cover not only Adam and Eve's sin, but their shame. And so this naked and unashamed, chapter 2, now naked and ashamed, are now covered by the skins of substitutionary sacrifice. Isn't God gracious? And whether we are children who have sinned or parents who have sinned, we know that God can come And we don't have to hide because he wants to come and cover over us with his robes of righteousness. One more glimpse of redemption. And this is what the theologians call the proto-evangelon. Evangelon means gospel, and it's the very first glimpse of the gospel. And it is this, verse 15 I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God is talking to Eve about her offspring. And he says, someone coming from your offspring will have the serpent bruise his heel. But as the serpent bruises his heel, he will crush the serpent's head. The proto-evangelon. This was the first mention of Jesus. That on the cross, he would not only bleed for our forgiveness, he would crush the serpent's head. As Colossians 2 verse 10 said, Jesus, having disarmed the powers and authorities, made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them by the cross. Isn't that amazing? That Jesus would allow his heel to be bruised by the serpent, but he would crush the serpent's head. This is our hope in the redemption of family. Not only that Jesus forgives us when we sin, but Jesus has actually conquered the serpent who comes to bring the curse against family. And so he actually promises victory in the area of husbands and wives who are fighting, siblings who are fighting, and work that feels like toil. Jesus is saying, I don't just forgive you when you sin, I give you the hope of victory because I have crushed the serpent's head. And therefore no marriage and no family is beyond his redemption because he has had his heel struck by the serpent, but in that he has crushed the serpent's head. We have a real enemy against our marriages and our family, but we have a God who is greater and a God who doubles down and says, I will bless the world through your family. And it reminds me of that old, as Sophie comes up, 
of that, oh, she's not going to sing this carol. She's going to sing another song. But there's that beautiful Christmas carol, Joy to the World, the Lord has come. And there's a little lyric in the midst of that that says, He comes to make His grace abound far as the curse is found. That's the joy of the gospel. As far as the curse is found in your marriage, in your kids, in your workplace, He comes to make His grace abound because He has crushed the serpent's head. Amen? So, Lord, I thank you so much that we see your design for family and marriage to be a blessing to the world. We thank you that it has been a blessing to us, but we acknowledge that it's also a battle. So, Jesus, we ask. We ask for your redemption. We ask that you would cover us with your robes of righteousness where we have fallen short, Jesus. We thank you for the hope of your victory, that you have crushed the serpent's head. And we stand in your victory, Jesus. We stand in your authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to you and therefore has been given to us. And so we just, we want to speak the name, the great name, the mighty name of Jesus over our marriages and over our children. Lord, we we speak it over our children, especially our children who are far from you. We speak your name. And we say thank you that you are a redeemer. We thank you that you are still a God who comes searching, who comes looking, who comes redeeming. And we ask that you would redeem our children. Lord, we ask that your grace would come and redeem every area that has been cursed. We pray for people for whom work feels like toil. We thank you that there is victory in your name. In Jesus' name.